There we go. All right. Helps if you turn the mic on. Good morning. Welcome to Haven Rouge this morning. It's good to see everyone on this bright, beautiful spring day. Tell you what, I, lo I love the spring. I really do. All the colors that just pop. There. All right. Well, a few announcements as we get go in this morning. Um, our Easter fellowship is, uh, is this afternoon, 3.30 to 6 at the Groves House. If you need directions or an address, uh, please see Caroline or Travis right there in the back uh, afterwards. But that'll be 3.30 to 6. It will be a potluck meal. Uh, feel free to bring you know, uh, anything to share for you and your family plus, you know, plus one, basically. That's usually how we do it. If you're able to bring, you know, um, food safe items, you know, that would be great. If, if, if you're concerned um, just about passing of germs and things, you know, regarding a potluck meal, you are certainly welcome to bring a meal for your family alone. That's certainly, that's certainly okay. Just bring your own, you know, whatever you want to bring. You want to bring a steak, you know, bring it pre-cooked. I don't think the grill's going to be fired up, you know. Um, hey, there you go. There you go, you know. Yeah. But uh, we want you and your family to be comfortable. Uh, the, the important thing is that you, you know, we want you to come fellowship. Uh, we're going to do so outside, so we'll have plenty of distancing available. Uh, but it will be a wonderful time. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. So that'll be this afternoon. Uh, Easter egg hunt uh, for all the kids and all the kids at heart. Um, so that'll be provided as well. If you still have eggs and you'd like to, to bring them and, and donate them, bring them this, uh, this evening or this afternoon. Um, and then also I talked to Car uh, Caroline just before the service. And uh, because the rain flooded the, uh, the pasture where we we're going to be uh, hanging out last time we had to reschedule. Well, it's not flooded it, but it's it still got got rained on last night so don't bring your fancy dresses and your white shoes you're going to the farm not downtown okay so bring your boots bring your old shoes put old clothes on your kids you know just know that's where you're going all right so we're gonna have a good time uh, dress accordingly all right so that'll be this afternoon uh, april 25th is going to start our 
uh, marriage sermon, sermon series that's going to be a four-part series. Um, I'm not going to tell you all the details of that. You'll see when we get close to it, but it's going to be a really good, encouraging series for those who are married and even those who are not. Um, so all around, it's going to be a, just a good, edifying series for, for everyone in the church body. Um, so that's going to be starting April 25th. April 25th, also following the service, we'll have a potluck meal and we're going to have a baby shower for Heather Scholler. Okay, so that'll be following the service on April 25th. Go ahead and mark your calendars for that. Um, April has said she prefers Huggies, diapers, and wipes, but will certainly take anything. What did I say? I'm sorry. I am so sorry. This is how rumors get started. The pastor messes up somebody's mind. Heather. Heather. Sorry. Goodness. Wow. That's... uh. Yeah, where do you go from there? So, anyways, our call to worship this morning, <laughs> Heather Scholler. <laughs> That's good. Heather Scholler, who is expecting a baby. Yes, baby shower will be the 25th, and Heather prefers uh, uh, Huggies, diapers, and whites, but we'll take anything. So, I'm going to move on. Um, as Alan mentioned last week, our evangelism training is going to be moved to the fall just because of everything that was happening this spring, marriage sermon series, Alan really preparing heavily for that. We just said, look, this is just going to be really too much to try and pull together, you know, here. So we're going to move that to, uh, to, to the fall. So just keep, keep that in mind. Um, and I think that's it. Anything else pertaining? Okay. Just remember, uh, take a look around, check who's not here. Um, who's not with us, whether you know why they're here or not, check in on folks in the church body. Um, as part of our responsibilities, being in community together, loving one another, is, uh, is fostering Christ in, uh, in those around us and those in our community. And when people are absent and they're not here, we have that opportunity to reach out to them, uh, to be an encouragement, uh, to speak the word of God to them in truth and in love, um, and, uh, and, and, and foster the, uh, uh, the spirit of Christ in them as we give encouragement. So uh, take a look around. Notice who's not here. Just call them, text them, say, hey, we missed you. How can I pray for you? How are things going this week? All right. Well, our call to worship this morning comes from uh, Psalm 145. As I was driving here, I was just, like I said, I love the spring and uh, just was amazed at the wisteria that's blooming and the, the red buds and the dogwood trees. And, you know, I got to see a turkey just kind of meandering off the road and a uh, a heron on a you know on a creek bank and was just amazed really and uh, Psalm 145 um, just I think captures this and then expands on it so this is our call to worship this morning <clears throat> Psalm 145 the Lord is gracious and merciful slow to anger and great in loving kindness the Lord is good to all and his mercies are over all his works all your work shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and, you, and your godly ones shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power to make known to the sons of men your mighty acts and the glory of the majesty of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. Let's pray. Fellas, we come to you this morning, this beautiful spring morning. We look out and we see the grandeur of your glory displayed in creation for all to see, for all to marvel at, for all to enjoy. Lord, it's the 
brushstroke of your glory in the midst of creation. And it causes us to marvel and wonder. It's you, the creator of all things. And Father, there's more to that. We come this morning not merely to celebrate the common display of your glory in creation, Father, but to, just, to celebrate the specific glory of your display of love and mercy toward us and the coming of your kingdom through Jesus Christ, Father. It is him whom we come and worship today. And so, Father, would you be pleased to meet with us? Speak to our hearts. Father, meet with us this morning that we might be made more like Christ and we might be lights in a darkened world, that we might be salt. So, Father, would you come and meet with us this morning? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Good morning. Let's stand together and sing.
wonders beyond our galaxy. You are holy, holy, and the universe declares your majesty. You are holy, holy. You can have a seat, children, if you want to come up and join. Mr. Austin, by the stage. All right. Good morning. How's everybody doing this morning? Yeah. Everybody have a good spring break that's had one? Do you remember your spring break? I heard about that. That's awesome. That's awesome. We've been talking about the third person of the, of the Trinity. We just started a couple weeks ago. Does anybody remember who that is? Moses, right? What was that? Who's the third person of the, Holy, uh, who's the, third person of the Trinity? The Holy Spirit. That's right. We've been talking about the Holy Spirit. Okay? And so two weeks ago, we talked about the, the, the Holy Spirit the last time we got together. Okay, and how in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit made himself known or he filled people. Okay, and there were three kind of key things about that, you know, in the Old Testament, how the Holy Spirit filled people. I know that's been, you know, that, uh, you've, you've had spring break since then, so I'm not going to quiz you. Okay, but I'll give you those kind of those three points. One of those was that he only filled some people. Okay, it, it happened on a fairly rare occasion. And um, and so it wasn't everybody. He filled, you know, he filled only some people. And when he did so, he filled them uh, in order to accomplish a task. Okay, that it was to accomplish a task or do something. It was something specific that was that was key to God bringing about a, a, a part of His plan. And and God would fill the Holy uh, would fill that person or persons with the Holy Spirit in order to carry that out. And we looked at some of those examples in the Old Testament. Okay, and then the last thing is usually when that task was done, then the Holy Spirit left them. Okay, so that's what we looked at the last uh, two weeks ago. Okay, but there's more to that because God had promised that later, at a point later in time, the Holy Spirit would come in a greater sense. Okay, so that's what, what we're going to look at today is what is it in the Old Testament, the Old Testament God promised that the, the, the Holy Spirit would come in a greater sense, in a more fuller sense. So what, is, what did that mean? Okay, I'm going to give you a couple uh, places in the Old Testament where God talked about this, okay? So in the book of Isaiah, okay, big book in the Old Testament, lots going on in Isaiah, and, and Isaiah speaks a lot about what's going to come in the coming kingdom of God, okay? And one of the things that he talks about is when God will pour his spirit out. So there's a point in time in the Old Testament, Isaiah's, uh, he's, um, Isaiah's on the scene, he's a prophet of God, okay, he speaks for God, he tells the people what God says, okay, and the people have turned their back on God, okay, they're prospering, they're doing fine, they're, you know, they're loving their idols, okay, and they've turned their back on God, and God pronounces judgment, they're, they're getting ready to be disciplined hard, okay, God's going God's gonna to bring judgment on his people in order to turn their hearts back to him. Okay, he's going to bring that judgment, but he doesn't end talking about judgment, you know, in, you know, in a very dark sense. He gives, he ends it with hope, and he says this. He says this judgment's going to come, and then he says, 
that my spirit will be poured out uh, on, uh, on everyone from on high, on you. He's, he's speaking to Israel, to the people of God. And the wilderness will become fruitful, will become a fruitful field. And the fruitful field will, uh, is deemed as a forest. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness and righteousness abide in the fruitful field. And the effect of righteousness will be peace. And the result of right, righteousness, quietness and trust forever. My people will abide in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, and in quiet resting places. So do you hear what he's promising? That he's promising that there's going to come a time, okay, when, 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 when the people of God will experience peace. Okay, when, when armies aren't going to invade them and they're going to be fearful, that they'll experience peace. That righteousness will rule, justice will dwell in the wilderness. That, that the habitation, the people, places where people will live, where it's been barren, it's going to seem like a forest, like a wonderful place to live. And he said, when is this going to happen? He says, it happens when I pour my spirit out on you. I said, later in Isaiah, Isaiah 44, Isaiah kind of expounds on this. He talks more about it. And he says, he says of Israel, the one whom I've chosen, my people. He, said, he says this in later days. He says that, uh, thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows flowing from a stream. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob and another will write on his hand the Lord's. And name himself by the name of Israel. Do you know in Israel's past, there were very few times when Israel was very proud to be God's people. They were proud of the things that God gave them. But oftentimes they were not proud to be called God's people. They wanted to be like the other nations. And God says, I'm going to pour my spirit out. And the people will be proud to say, I'm God's people. I'm the Lord's he said this and this is going to be a transformation for the people themselves and later in the book of ezekiel here's one of the key places where god promises a big big promise that it, that's coming ezekiel says this therefore say to the house of israel thus says the lord god it's not for your sake O house of israel that i'm about to act but for the sake of my holy name which you've profaned among the nations to which you came God had sent his people out into the nations. Said, You're going to be the example of me to the nations. And Israel did a very poor job of that. In fact, instead of exalting God's name, they made a mess of it. And God said, I'm going to, I'm going to do a changing work here. And it's not for your sake. It's for the sake of my holy name. So I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which will, has been profaned among the nations and which you've profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God. When through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Says, I'm going to do something for the sake of my name. It's going to be done through you who are, who are my people. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. And I will... Uh, and I will put my spirit within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you 
and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey all my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. Okay, so do you hear that? Kind of that last part of the promise. What's, God, what's it going to look like when God sends his Holy Spirit? One of the key things is that for the sake of God's name, he will send his spirit on his people. Okay, to make his people holy and righteous. Right? If you know anything about the Old Testament and the stories in the Old Testament, God gave that law. Right? He gave that law. Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't, don't, don't look at other people with an unholy motive. Right? And the people failed at that. And God says, there will come a day when I'm going to change your heart so that you'll pursue righteousness, you'll pursue holiness, and then these blessings will come. Right? And he said, when is this going to happen? It's going to happen when I pour my spirit out on you. Joel says later, this, is, this will happen on all flesh. He said he will do this for, for all. Okay, so this is what God has promised will come when he pours his Holy Spirit out. Right? That peace will come. We'll live peacefully. Okay, but this happens when God pours his Spirit out. Now, there's more questions to this. I'm going to leave you with a cliffhanger, okay? When is this going to happen? You know, does God just take like a bucket of his spirit and go on all of creation and all of a sudden just snap? It's done. How's it going to happen? When's it going to happen? Well, that'll be next time. Okay, because as we look into later in the Old Testament and the New Testament, we'll find that it's not just as simple as we may think it is. Okay, but that'll be for next time. All right, well, thank you guys for listening this morning. Let me pray for us and then you guys can go sit back down. Father God, Lord, we thank you. Thank you for the grace of your promises in the old testament father that we can see that you're a god who's been working to carry out your plan to exalt and glorify your name through a people whom you've chosen who will follow you in faithfulness they're not perfect lord the people that we see who love you in the old testament and in the new testament and on through the the church age father we don't see perfection we see brokenness we see weariness but what we see is we see faithfulness. We see faithfulness of people who say, I, I trust you, Lord. I don't understand everything. But I see your goodness. I see your mercy and I see your kindness. And I trust you even when things don't make sense. And on and on through the ages, Father, you have made promises and you've brought those things to, to fulfillment. And Lord, you've promised the coming of your Holy Spirit and that that would do a changing work in the people who call on you. What grace we have that Jesus came, died, rose again so that he might send the Spirit, the first deposit of that change. So Father, I pray that these young ears this morning would hear with faith as we speak each week of your glory and your grandeur and our need to be washed clean by the blood of Jesus. Father, would these ears hear the gospel, love Christ, cling to him, place their hope in him, and walk in newness of life all of the days of their life, exalting and praising you and giving glory to your name. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, guys. You guys can go sit down. Y'all can stand and sing with us again.
be seated. Before Alan comes up uh, and preaches, let's uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. By God, we celebrate that this morning. The blood of Jesus applied. Thank you, Jesus. And Father, may that, as we celebrate, may we celebrate the blood of Christ. Not as a get-out-of-jail-free card we present at the gate and until then live life however we want but when we realize the weight of that and the, that we're called we claim Christ we treasure him and we say thank you we realize the effectiveness of that blood applied is not only to justify us before a righteous and holy God, but to sanctify us as well, to set us apart. That your spirit was given to those who claim Christ and name him, have faith in him to sanctify us to make us holy, to make us righteous. And there's a battle that goes on daily for that. That's why Paul wrote to the Ephesians and said, don't live your life anymore like the Gentiles who walk in darkness, but be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Set aside the old self. Actively do this daily. So Father, let's pray as we come and we worship that that blood applied to us would be a reminder that we daily set aside the old self and pursue you in righteousness and holiness. Not that we can point others to us and say, look how good I am, look how clean I am. That we might in gentleness and grace come alongside others and say, I need Jesus daily. I need his cleansing power. I need his blood applied more today yesterday than than more today more today than I did yesterday not because I'm any I'm any darker today but I see my need for Jesus more today than I did yesterday so father wash me cleanse me wash the dirt off my feet we come alongside others and we say your brother sister you need Jesus just as much as I do see his cleansing power See the work that He's done on the cross. And rest. Give your burdens to Him for His yoke is easy and His burden is light. Be made new through faith in Christ. This is our drumbeat. This is our life as Christians. May we not forget. And Father, as we, as we walk in newness of life here, as we're missionaries here locally, Father. We ask you to do this work in us, the sanctifying work. We lift up our, our faithful brothers and sisters who are doing this same work overseas in Bangladesh, in Ireland, where there's such violence, in China, in other parts of the world, Father. 
Would your spirit rest on these missionaries? Keep them faithful, Father, in their task. Give them an eye that is myopic, that sees Jesus and treasures him above all else. That worldly treasures wouldn't hold a candle to Jesus and the mission given to them. Keep them faithful, Father, and supply all their needs necessary to take the gospel to the people that you put in contact with them. That Father, whether it's far away in a, in a foreign country or here at home, that all of your saints would be faithful in the mission given to them until Jesus comes. And so, Father, that's where we are. So now as Alan comes and he opens your word, Father, he speaks to us about community and what it means to be the church gathered so that we might then be the church scattered. Father, bless him. Bless your word. May it come in power and in clarity. Meet each each of us where we need it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. can open your Bibles this morning to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 will start in verse 42. I'm going to do something a little bit different today than what you're used to. For those of you that are visiting with us, just know that we normally preach expository sermons. We walk through verses in the text. Uh, We are in between books of the Bible right now. And so this allows us the opportunity to tackle a few topics, a few things that we feel are pertinent or relevant uh, to the church, to Haven Ridge specifically right now. So, um, so that's what we're doing for a few weeks. Pray for us. We don't know yet what, what book we're going we're gonna to start on next. I can guarantee you this. It won't be the book of Revelation. So if you had hopes for that, yeah, if you've got hopes for that, you can talk to, uh, you can talk to some other folks. By the way, for... For Matt and some of you other guys, I watched the Night of Eschatology yesterday, the whole two hours, and it was hilarious. Uh, it was so funny. Um, I'd seen a lot of it before, but I watched it all last night, and I'm sitting there where we're driving home from the uh, from Kentucky, and and Sarah keeps giving me these looks because I just burst out in laughter because John Piper, who moderated the thing, is not one with to have many jokes, but he was cracking on those guys the whole time, you know. Um, so anyway, but uh, it was a it was a good thing. So. Anyway, so yeah, Acts chapter 2, but before I read that, just to uh, continue what I was going to say, today um, I would appreciate just to, you allow me the opportunity to not walk through a specific uh, passage in in the scriptures. Uh, I'm going to springboard from one, again, this is not typically how we do this, but what I'm going to talk about today I think it will be very relevant, will be very pertinent and timely for all of us. So Austin already kind of mentioned it. I want to talk about community that takes place within the body of Christ. Now, for those of you that remember, and I'm kind of banking that most of you do not, several years ago I taught through this topic in a single Sunday. And so I'm revisiting some of that. I've edited some things as I've learned, as I've grown over the years in the way that I think about biblical community. And I want to, and some of you have had individual conversations about some of these things. So today I'm kind of going to lay a lot of those things out with regards to, to, to what the Bible thinks about these things, what the design is for, what its intent is, 
and uh, how it's gripping me as I wrestle through this idea of biblical community. Or to use a very specific biblical word, fellowship, or koinonia from the Greek. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. So that's where we find this, not the only place we find it, but where we find it first Uh, as far as today's concerned, in the book of Acts chapter 2. So look with me at verse 42, a little bit of a context here. This is what you would consider to be the first gathered local church, unless you would consider the disciples to be the first gathered local church, which I do not, but some do. Either way, this is a gathering of the saints. This is a repetitive gathering of the saints. Uh, They are coming and they're doing certain things. They're gathering together with intent, with purpose, with function, And here's what you see in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and all and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing them distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So you see this function of this local church, these saints who are gathering uh, uh, together for the first time that the saints would all gather like this because this is the acts this is where the local church was born and so you see them acting in this way they don't know what we know they don't have years of of church history to study and to look at they don't get to watch the evolution of church history as as it goes from house churches to mega churches to you know maybe more smaller settings gravitating towards house churches in a post modern time they they don't see that they're they're walking out of the gate to something that's very new and they're, they're, they're just doing it the best that they know how to do. And you see this paradigm that is actually quite beautiful. But what I want you to pay attention to is the fact that the Bible says that, that they were devoting themselves to the, ap, to, the, to the apostolic word, to the apostles' teaching, and the fellowship. Now that word means they had a specific commonality. They had something in common that was unique to them as believers. We understand that when we read the Bible, like in, uh, like in Ephesians, that uh, we, are, we are unified in the Spirit. Paul t- talks about preserving the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We understand if you look at the mechanics more of that, that it's the gospel that unites us. Because of the gospel, we have the Spirit of God, right? But it's the gospel that is the root of our commonality. Despite all the things that separate us, all of the things that make us different, whether it be our eschatology, whether it be our preferences, whether it be our attractions, whether it be our hobbies or whatever, the style of food that we like, the style of music that we like, all those things don't matter. What does matter is that they came together and they had koinonia, they had fellowship of the deepest kind rooted in what's most significant, and that's the gospel. And it's said that they devoted themselves to the apostolic word and devoted themselves to that fellowship. They devoted themselves to a particular type of community. So you get this sense that this is not filling the seats. This is not people just showing up to be checked off of a box. 
These are people here with intent. And you see the byproduct or the outworking of that devotion to the fellowship, that devotion to community as they're breaking bread together, as they're devoting themselves to the prayers, as they're spending time together, as there's this familial reality that's happening within the interpersonal relationship dynamics of these believers. Now, I do have a separate sermon called Vital Signs of the Healthy Church that Sarah promises I've preached here about four to six times, and we're in great battle against this. So if you would kindly, later, not now, remind her that I I haven't done that, okay? Because you remember all my sermons, and you would remember if I've done that. So uh, she says she's got them dated. I'm like, well, was it here? So if this is one I've preached 12 times, and you've heard it, you know, 12 times, and just bear with me, okay? But uh, I don't think that you have. So here's my objective for today, to see and understand the nature of biblical community, to see and understand the nature of biblical community within the local church, within the local church. So community, I'm treating synonymously with fellowship. So I'm going to use that term. I'll probably use community more than I use fellowship, but understand that I'm treating those terms synonymously because I'm talking about an intentional form of community. A very specific, a very divinely designed and ordained form of community. This term goes beyond superficiality. It goes beyond just knowing someone's name. And most of you might not even know everybody's name. It goes beyond that. It goes beyond handshakes. It goes beyond Facebook friends. It goes beyond these things to where there's a real sharing of life. There's a real familial interpersonal connection and relationship that's taking place within the body of Christ. This term is used 20 different times in the New Testament. So it's worth our giving attention to what this term means. So here's my outline. It's twofold. I want to build an argument for community, and I want to show you the design and the purpose for community. So only two points here. So I'll I'll refer to a lot of Scripture. Again, this is not how we normally do this. But this is just something that's on my heart. It's always on the heart of us as elders, as pastors, because we desire for all of you to have community together. Our desire is not that you only know each other in where you typically sit on Sundays and then you have this dualistic way of living so that when you leave here, you have nothing to do with anybody in this room. That's not community. If that's where you are, you don't have community. You don't. Not biblical community. There's a superficiality that maybe you're experiencing, but there's not true, meaningful, familial God-intended biblical community. So here's the argument that I would kind of build. We're not, we're not strangers to this idea of community. Now, granted, some of you might be prone towards uh, being an introvert. I get that. I get that. Some of you might be more of an isolationist. You might be more comfortable with three people, you, yourself, and I. You know, that's it. You know, nobody else. I get it. I get it. I totally get it. I'm very social. Uh, I know Evan is very, very, very social. He would hang out with the dregs of society, not because he loves them so much, but because it would somebody, you know, have his attention. Uh, So Evan's very social, and I love that about I love that about Evan. You know, if there's nothing going on at all, but there's bodies present, he might be there, you know, because he just loves to be with people. Catherine, can you attest to that, right? So, so right, so, you know, uh, I'm that way. I like people. I like having folks over. I like doing all these things. You know, it, my, my relationship with Sarah is, is so beautifully compatible because I love to bring everybody over, and she's so good at hospitality. 
Now, normally what that means is I'm not so good at making sure things are clean. I'm not so good at cooking. I'm not so good at these things. She's great at those things. So it really works well. So while I'm always excited, let's bring people over, let's bring people over. Sometimes I forget the workload that falls on her sometimes um, uh, because my desire for social interaction often means somebody's doing the work when somebody shouldn't be doing the work by herself. So Sarah, I apologize. I'm trying to repent of that. I can't help it. I love people. That's what God tells me to do. So, um, but we are used to community. We're used to this. We, you know, some of you have been a part of sororities. Some of you have been a part of fraternities. You know, we go to, we go to watch, we, we like team sports. Some of you gather in coliseums or in stadiums. Coliseum is kind of a weird word, I guess, now. But, but, but you go to stadiums and you sit with thousands and thousands of other people for this communal experience watching someone do a communal sport. Right, very few sports are are isolated. But even those sports that have just individuals, it's usually one versus one. Guess what? That's community. Guess what? There's spectators. That's a community. Even golf has people you're playing against. So in a sense, it's community. You have your caddy. Even that's an idea towards community. We're a part of clubs. We like reality shows because they put people in a small community and see what kind of good TV that makes. Right? What kind of drama will unfold? gangs that's a community it's a brotherhood not saying it's good i'm saying there's a community there i've heard so many times from gang members or former gang members in in mississippi where i used to live and they would talk about just wanting to be a part of a brotherhood you know maybe their interest was not in violence maybe their interest was not in crime but it was an interest in being a part of a family as they would say i mean that's common language that you hear you know, when you talk about those kind of affiliations. Military, what is that? That's a, that's a community. And it's not just a community while you're there, but it's a community that keeps on going. There are, you know, there's, there's a community of veterans. There's a community of those who uh, have suffered injury as, as, as a vet or as, uh, with war and stuff. So there's a, almost you could say a homogeneous unit to use that phraseology, you know. There's a sameness there with those people, and that's a, that's a community of people. Maybe they don't hang out. I realized that once I got a Jeep, I became a part of another community, the Jeep community. You know, now it is funny. I get used to doing the two-finger wave at people, and normally you get the wave back. Now that I'm dri- I drive the van sometimes, and I'll wave at a Jeep, and they just snub me, okay? So there is a, there is a little bit of snobbery that exists in that Jeep community. You know, there is a, a minivan community, which I'm proud to say I'm a part of. There's a motorcycle community. You do the, the drop wave, right? You got... There's a community. We're used to this idea of community. There's tattoo communities. There's all kinds. There's bald head communities, which are the best of communities. Our natural rhythms, our natural rhythms, the natural rhythms of our lives lend themselves to community. We go to parties together. We like to do that. We have barbecues. God said, hey, and I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but God said, let's, let's, let's make man. It's not good that man should be alone. God created a community. And then what do we do? We have babies. We make more community. We surround ourselves with little bitty, with little bitty committee type, community type things, right? And so we build this community. We have friendships, social media. You can have all the virtual electronic friends that you want in the whole wide world. I have close to two thousand friends on Facebook, and I'm close with maybe five of them, right? I mean, it's it's, but they're my friends. Twitter, Instagram, same thing. There's these, there's this community idea. Watching certain movies with certain people make that certain movie better. We tried this one time with Evan. He did not make it into our community. We tried to watch uh, The Princess Bride. It's one of those movies you watch with the right people. And uh, he was disciplined out of our community group. 
They didn't like it. But sometimes you watch a movie, and it's right with the right people. It's a communal experience. We sit in bleachers with other parents watching our kids play team sports, watching them play communal sports. We spend a lot of our life, I would say mostly all of our life, in community of some form. And those are just secular examples. But what about the biblical precedent for community? It starts well before the local church. It actually goes back to eternity past. Because before creation of all things, before time began, he which transcends time and space has always been as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That's a community. Three persons, one God. That is a communal existence. It is a perfect communal existence. And I would say it is the ultimate example of what a community should be. Then God made Adam. God made all these things. We just came back from the Creation Museum and the Ark Encounter uh, yesterday and the day before. And uh, just an overwhelming experience. You know, a lot of cool things I walked away with looking at the architecture of a building and just wonder how in the world could Noah, you know, pull this off with the people that helped him. You know, all these fascinating things. But I think the one thing that really gripped my heart more than anything that I experienced either in the Creation Museum or in the Ark Encounter was that, I mean, God's Word is true. It is actually really true. And I believe that and I've always believed that. But there are times or seasons in life where these things just get reaffirmed and, and re-solidified, if, you'll, if that's okay to say. Because you see these things that so many people have debated against and so many people have raised questions against. And you see that even before these questions were raised, even before the scientific community started to challenge these things, and even things that the scientific community accepts was already represented in the Scriptures. It's true. It's true, so it's just freshening the confidence that I already had in God's Word. And we read in God's Word that God made all these things, all these beautiful, beautiful, lovely, wonderful things. This magnificent creation, it's especially neat if you watch their depiction of it in 3D. I'm just saying, you see these things, and then the crown of that creation comes about as man. Not all of the animals, not the vegetation, not the waters, not the firmament, not all of these things, not even the stars, not even the sun, not the greater light, not the lesser light, none of these things, but it's man. It's man that is the crown of God's creation. And what does he do? He says it's not good that man's alone. Man needs to be in community. So he gives man woman, and it's Adam and Eve. And they're in community, but then he says, now you have to be fruitful. So let's make more community. Let's populate this earth with community. And then sin ran rampant across the whole world. And what happens? God says, I'm going to wipe the world. I'm going to deal with it. I'm going to pour out wrath. I'm going to pour out justice. I'm going to dispense of these things that I have against you, O man. But he doesn't completely eradicate man. He saves a community. Who does he save? He saves Noah, his wife, Shamham, Japheth, and their wives. And then they start over. He says, now, build community. God led the children of Israel. God, his chosen people, as we understand in the Old Testament, are a community, are a people. Even when you read the words of Solomon in Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 12, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another way to go up. It says again, if the two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? 
And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. There's something to be said about community, and there's a biblical precedent. Jesus and his disciples spent years in community. The church in Acts 2, 42 through 47, they devoted themselves to this community, to this very specific community, this local church community now. There's an undeniable pattern concerning the church and how it operates within the body throughout the New Testament. There's an undeniable pattern there. The New Testament church was established, and what did they do? They gathered. Once in Christ, there is an assumed connection to community as the local church. There's biblical language that promotes community. Biblical community is not just something described in the text, but it's something that's prescribed throughout the Bible. And that's an important distinction to make. It's an important distinction. All the times we see it described, they gathered together here. They were giving themselves to one another here. They one anothered here, one anothered here, one anothered here. All this language to suggest that there was some form of communal living to a degree. It's not just descriptive, but it's absolutely prescriptive. There is a mandate for the church to be in community together. But again, this is, this is not a superficial community. And this is something that's much deeper, something that's much richer. How can we bear one another's burdens? How can we properly admonish, properly exhort, properly edify and encourage one another if all of our exchanges as far as communal living are superficial? If there's only superficiality when it comes to your relationships then you're not experiencing community and you will fall short of operating the way you're supposed to operate individually in this corporate gathering. Paul addresses this. We'll see it in just a minute. Paul addresses the function of the church. He talks about by what every joint supplies. There's a bringing together of the body of Christ following this analogy. And there's bones and there's structure and there's function and there's giftings. All so that the one mechanism can work and operate properly. And so we have to be careful if we have this operation that's going on and it takes all of us like it takes an engine. All these parts have to come together and work for an engine to work properly. But if your carburetor's busted or just not even there or functioning poorly, it messes up everything. And so there's this idea that community is its strongest when everyone is deeper than a superficial connection to that community. So I would say that it's not just described, but it's prescribed. Koinonia and one anothering are interconnected. So let's, let's review some of these one anothering passages. Every one of Paul's epistles are written to groups that are assumed to be sharing life together. These letters were addressed to the church that gathered in different houses, making them separate local churches. It was a circular letter. Romans 12, 10 and 16, love one another with brotherly affection. Listen to the one anothering language. Outdo one another in showing honor. That's important. <laughs> Don't just outdo one another. You know, outdo one another in what? In showing honor. Live in harmony with what? One another. Ephesians 4, 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. The question is, how do you bear with one another in patience and in love without sharing life together? How do you even know what needs to be, what you need to bear for so, or with someone or for someone or whatever? How do you know their needs? How do you know their hurts? How do you know their struggles? How do you know where truth needs to be spoken into their life 
if you're on this superficial trajectory in terms of the interpersonal relationship with the community that you're a part of, that you've covenanted together with. Ephesians 5.19, Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not be drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Ephesians 5.21, Submission to one another. This happens in community. Colossians 3.13, again, bearing with one another. 1 Thessalonians 4.18 and 5.11, love and encourage one another. These are the proper components that need to be taking place in order for there to be not just true but healthy community. And I would say not just true but a healthy local church. Because anybody can gather and say I'm in Christ and say, hey, we're a local church. And maybe that's true. But it's a different story when the church that gathers is not functioning. And some will say, if they're not functioning as a church, there must not be a church. But let's say for the sake of argument that these are true saints who are gathering together. Maybe we come together and we sing some songs. That's awesome. You know, maybe we exchange some pleasantries when we first come in on a Sunday morning. But there's never a speaking truth in love. There's never this aspect of bearing with one another. There's never this aspect of, uh, of admonishment. And that goes both ways. That's, I mean, that, that, that goes for elders as well. You know, can we say that we're having true community if we're not admonishing? Some of you in here we've had conversations with. Some of you we've had admonishing conversations with. I've been admonished in my life. I've been admonished by some of you, which is good for me. I hate to say that it was joy, but it was. Okay, so... And it was good, it was good, it was right, it was healthy. It was an oversight of mine that he helped me to see, and, and praise God for that. But that's community. That's what happens there. But a lot of times, and I'm going to make a, generaliz- a generalization if you'll allow it, we don't, we don't want to get our hands dirty, we don't want to get muddy, we don't want to see things. We may see problems, but we don't want to address that because we think that's going to disrupt community. When the negligence is what disrupts community. And a little leaven leavens the whole lump. So let me just throw this out there, which is not in my notes, but I'm going to say it. If you see an issue, and we're not willing to address an issue, let's go for admonishment, exhortation, whatever. If we see an issue in the body that's disrupting community, that's leaven, leavening the whole lump, it begs the question, in your negligence, you must not love the church. Because to allow something like that to come to pass without being a bulwark of truth, without being someone who's serious about devoting yourselves to community, devoting yourself to right doctrine, to right teaching, because that's what the apostolic word was, because Christ gave them these words, and they just come and say, this is what Christ has told us. Boom, here it is. It's not us. It's Jesus. You've got to deal with that. These are the words of life. They're his, given to us. We share them. The language of the Bible when speaking of the New Testament church is explicitly communal i can't tell you how many times i've heard in my life coming from the mississippi delta i can worship god in a deer stand yes you can and should and absolutely should we create these categories of acceptance to where well you know i i'm fulfilling what's there in the bible because i'm gathering uh with jesus i'm 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 worshiping jesus It does not take a rocket scientist of any degree. It does not take a theologian of any high degree to realize that there is a specific context to which this communal activity exists, and that's in the local church. 
Now, I don't mean in these four walls, by the way. I don't mean this is the only place community happens. I mean the relationship paradigm, the relationship dynamic that you all share as you share life together. And most of that, by the way, should take place outside of these walls. And by the way, to be encouraging to you, I see it happening a lot. I see community. I see, I see it a lot. I see we're deficient in, with some, but I see it a lot. I see a lot of communal activity. I see a lot of life on life. So that's how I would argue, simplic- uh, you know, simply, that's how I would argue that this is a biblical concept, that community's there, and I think we all would agree with that. So hopefully this is just the pot calling the kettle black today, and we all understand these things. But like tithing, these are things we have to circle back to every so many years and just talk about because they're in the Bible. Nobody wants to run the risk of standing up here talking about tithing and seem like we're money hungry. You know, nobody wants to come up here and feel like, you know, I feel like I'm just, you know, shaming everybody. That's not it at all. That's not it at all. It's we're in a place right now where a pandemic has affected us. There's been a disruption in community, whether that's a a good excuse or not. That's that's where it is. So we have to bring reality to bear and say, there's the things that we have to put on the table and just observe. So here's the second point. I want to talk to you about a design for community. Keeping in mind that the psalmist wrote these words in Psalm 133, verse 1, he said the design or, or the design for unity was in place long before the church. Here's what he said. Behold, how good and pleasant is it when brothers dwell in unity. So there's a specificity to this type of gathering. And this unity doesn't just mean, hey, we're unified in our love for, you know, the Beatles, <laughs> you know, it's not saying that at all. There, there's, there's a heart and an intent there that says something that unifies you in your faith and in your allegiance to God. Because when the rubber meets the road, believer, when everything comes crashing down, call it your deathbed, call it whatever you will, call it adversary, adversity, call it persecution, whatever. When the rubber meets the road, how unified you are with someone in your taste for spaghetti will not matter one bit to you. What will matter is what Jesus means to you, what the gospel means to you, and what the implications are for your life and for your death. That's what matters. People get very religious. I've stood at the at the end of a lot of people who are dying on their deathbed. And people who have never shown an inclination of, of religiosity, an inclination of, of Christianity or faith or joy or anything, I've seen these people, by and large, get very religious in those moments. Because everything is stripped away. And then there's this sobriety that comes, about, com- comes with knowing that All these things that were great treasures to me, I cannot take with me. They did not serve any purpose keeping me from this moment. And they most assuredly did not supply my joy to sustain me during this moment. So people get very religious. So what unifies us is what matters. And I said it at the beginning, and it's the gospel that unifies us. Community is designed to provide a context for displaying the gifting of God's people for the purpose of God's glory. That's part of community's design. To provide a context for displaying the gifting of God's people for the purpose of God's glory. Listen to what Paul says again in Ephesians 4.16. He says, speaking the truth 
in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Each individual part makes the whole. That's the idea of community. You have strengths, you have weaknesses, but there's a compatibility there. I have weaknesses and my wife has strengths. I have strengths where she has weaknesses. That's the beauty of the marriage paradigm, which we're going to see in just a few weeks as we look at a beautiful design for marriage. And there's a compatibility there within the body of Christ to where our weaknesses don't mean that it's all over because others have strength that will stand up or step up when we have our weaknesses. I mean, I'm not asking for a show of hands, but let me just give a very real-time example. Some of you would say that going out and witnessing, uh, you know, going out and witnessing, period, much less downtown or at the abortion clinic or wherever it may be, some of you would say, that's just not my bag. I'm, I'm a little uncomfortable with that. I'm not talking about whether you like it or not. I'm saying, let's say you're just uncomfortable with that. You know, it's not something that I would just do because ugh, it makes me nervous. Maybe you would say, well, that's a weakness. I lack certain boldness, maybe. But here's the deal. What happens when you watch other men or women that are out there doing that? Does that not in some way embolden you, strengthen you, sharpen you, convict you? That's a part of the uniqueness of one brother or sister working in a complementary fashion to supply strength where others have weaknesses in the body. And all of us are unique and have different giftings. All of them are not utilized all the time. I understand that. All of you are not gifted to be on stage. Not everyone can sing or play piano or do any of these things. I get that. And some people fall into the delusion that, well, I can't do anything because that's the only place to really serve, as if being on stage is the only way to really serve. You know, you may not be on the nursery care roster. You may not be with, uh, with the children's at Little Me when we were doing that, and hopefully when we will do that again soon. That may not be your thing. It may, you may not have any of those things going, and you say, well, I can't. What, what is there? The thing is... Maybe you lack a little creativity because here's the reality. The scripture shows us that in community, the way it's designed for the purpose that it's designed is for the edification of one another, ultimately the glory of Christ, and that we come together. Maybe you have someone that's just been granted wisdom through years of experience, and you could speak to someone from an experiential wisdom perspective, and that's going to be so valuable to someone that lacks wisdom. There's so many different ways that this works itself out in community. Each individual part makes the whole. That's the beauty of uniqueness. I would also say that community is designed to foster accountability. Accountability, servanthood, and one anothering exists inside body life. Where there is no body life or where there is no, where there is no body life, there's no community. Where there is no community, there is no accountability. And where there is no accountability, there is unchecked sinful conduct. If you ever hear or know of a church that is rampant with sin, that's unchecked. Every, every church has sin, don't get me wrong. And sin is dealt with by either the person realizing it without having have someone else coming up to them saying, Hey, what, what's going on here? And they repent or they see it immediately and they repent. Or sometimes people don't see it or they just refuse to do anything about it. And somebody has to come to them and say, hey, I've realized this. Now you're out of line. You need to repent. That's how community works. With no community, 
There's no accountability. No accountability means there's unchecked sinful conduct. We have church discipline as a part of church fellowship, as a part of koinonia, as a part of these things. You understand, if the root of koinonia, if the root of community is the gospel and someone acts outside of a gospel identity, then by necessity the response is we have to deal with the leaven that, ten, that, that could leaven the whole lump. So you see how these things are connected. Community is designed to foster accountability. Community is also designed, designed to display the gospel. This is a beauty of community. The unity of marriage is an expression of the gospel. We know that. So also the unity within the church is the expression of the gospel bringing together those who otherwise would not belong. You enter into marriage, and what does that depict? That depicts entering into a marriage with the Lamb, entering into a marriage with Jesus. We do not belong in relationship with Jesus. The groom purchased the bride. We do not belong to Jesus as the bride, as the church, uh, in and of ourselves. But we didn't do anything to earn that, so what does Christ do? Christ gives us our worth by imputing his righteousness to us, then brings us in to this fellowship, to this community where the gospel is the root. So all of our differences, all of our brokenness, all of our problems, all of our trials, our hang-ups, all of these things, we still have the one thing that unifies us and displays the gospel. And that is that we are unified through the Holy Spirit because of the gospel and Christ's work to secure all these things. Community is designed to display the gospel. Community is designed to strengthen the gathered church in order that the church may scatter. There's no place for dualism in the fellowship of God. And what I mean by that is hypocrisy, right? Dual, a dualistic life is I'm one way in one context, but I'm another way in another context. And that's a tremendous indictment against the church. Community designed to strengthen the gathered church so that we can continue to operate as the church while we're scattered. So you see how all this stuff connects. You have community. People come together. There's admonishment. There's exhortation. There's, uh, there's edification. There's all of these things. They're speaking truth and love and all that falls under that umbrella. And these things happen. We come in. We're weary from battle. If we're doing what we're supposed to do, we're out in the world. We're getting slammed. We come back. We're rejuvenated. We worship. We talk. We hear from one another. I may need someone to teach me something because that's a part of communal living. I stand up here, or Austin stands up here week in and week out, not because we like to hear ourselves talk, but because that's a part of communal, that's a part of the local church paradigm. If you've ever wondered, where did this ever come from? Why do people stand up on a platform and preach? Because a part of one anothering is teaching one another, and it's displayed as a local church New Testament paradigm. And so we're saying these are all things that matter you may need to hear this about suffering, like Austin preached on last week. You may need to hear this today about community because you're prone towards individuality. You're prone towards isolationism. And maybe you're not reaping the benefits of being a part of the body, and you need to hear that. So that you can hear that, be strengthened, so that when you scatter, you can better represent Jesus. Of course, that applies to our evangelistic efforts and being disciples of Christ. We come here and we're strengthened and encouraged by hearing about the gospel, hearing about the power of the gospel, hearing about the power of the resurrection, hearing that the word of God is true, that you can trust it, that it's living and active, and that it will not return, return void. We hear these things, and it's just a good reminder because I don't know about you, 
but I need these reminders all the time. I need to be rejuvenated and restrengthened all the time. This is not a situation to where, guess what, I was given the gospel, I was saved, I was given faith as this gift, you know what, then I'm good to go. There's a reason that Paul addresses the church and says, that which you believed, that which saved you, in which you are being saved, in which you will be saved. There's a constant necessity for the gospel and its power to carry us through life. I mean, you have to think about the gospel. We're, we're piggybacking on the gospel. We don't pick ourselves up by our bootstraps and make our way once we've had this little light that was thrown at us back whenever you prayed some prayer or whatever happened for you. We need it every day. We're piggybacking. We're riding on the gospel. If Jesus lets us go in any way, we do not move forward, but we move backwards. So community is designed to gather, to strengthen the gathered church, to be the scattered church. But there's a few dangers in community. A few more things and I'm done. A few dangers in a wrong approach to community. Let me clarify the way that I said that. Not dangers in community, but there's a few dangers in a wrong approach or a misappropriation of, of community. Some of these I've borrowed. I read a book by Diedrich Bonhoeffer some time ago, and this really gripped me in, in my way of thinking about community. First of all, Bonhoeffer says, someone who wants more than what Christ has established does not want Christian brotherhood. He is looking for some extraordinary social experience that he has found elsewhere. So the warning is be careful of your idealism when you approach community because idealism produces preferences and preferences can be idols. My idea of a church is that we might sing just hymns and we never sing anything that's not a hymn, so therefore I won't worship. That's idealism that gives way to preferences which give way to idols. You know, I will only wear a suit and tie because that's the only appropriate attire when standing in a worship service before a holy God. That is an ideal, not rooted in the Bible, by the way, that is an ideal that gives way to preferences that give way to idolatry. So you might be dressed your absolute best standing as a blazing idolater before a holy God. How does that land? Be careful of idealism. The meaning is basically this. Those who cannot find satisfaction in the biblical paradigm for community tend to make an idol out of their preference. Be careful of idealism as an approach to community. Be careful of consumerism as an approach to community. To consumerism is to pursue that which is most advantageous for you. What you want best, and there's idolatry steeped in that as well. A consumer takes but never gives. A consumer looks for what the church can do for them as opposed to what they can do for the church. So we have to be thinking in terms of... Again, all of these pieces are working together for a greater purpose. All of these pieces, Ephesians 4, are working by whatever joint supplies for the working of the whole body. What is it that you bring to the table? Because you're gifted to do what? Give. Others are gifted to do what? Give. And you can be the recipient of that, but to be a recipient exclusively is to be a consumer. And a consumeristic mentality or a consumeristic approach to community is unbiblical because God has given gifts for the edification of the body, ultimately the glorification of God. I've talked to a lot of people about this, this concept. You know, 
and, 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 and some people fail to see that, listen, you have experiences in life. You have your relationship with Jesus. You have you know, your favorite verses. You have the way that the Bible has impacted you in your life. You have your story. Now, granted, your story is no comparison to the gospel, but you have the gospel as well. You have all these things, not to mention gifts, not to mention talents. Maybe you have a boldness that someone else does. Maybe you have a, a way to articulate. Maybe you understand things better than someone else, and you can help someone see something a little better. You know, maybe, maybe, you, know, maybe you are God's gift to parenting, and you see someone else could use a little help. Come talk to me and my, my family, because, you know, we're always like, what do we do with these four children running around our house you know and maybe that's an opportunity we don't want to offend one another right it's like no nah, i'm not going to do that what if that's your gifting if you don't use your gifts the problem is you could just become a receiver or a consumer a consumer looks for what the church can do for them consumerism denies the biblical paradigm of one anothering one anothering assumes that we're giving Another thing to watch out for is individualism. Individualism is both essential and detrimental to the body at the same time, by the way. Being individualistic is a personality issue. I get that. Maybe you like isolation. Maybe you want to be in private all the time. Maybe you're not very social. That's a personality thing, and that's okay. That's how God made you. Problem is, is when personality or, or being... Our personalities, they determine our preferences. We are, we like what we like. We do what we do sometimes because of who we are and how God made us. That's fine. God made me. I love the outdoors. I love backpacking. I love those things. I have friends that are like, that's crazy. Mosquitoes are outside. Why would I ever go outside? You know, I get that. That's how God made them. That's fine. That, that's, that's, that's okay. You know, I don't, I, don't, I don't give a rip about Georgia football. Evan does. You know, it's okay. It's fine. That's, that's, that's we're, we're, we're different, you know. Um, so... <laughs> um, that's a personality that gives way to preferences. And that's not bad. We have preferences for a reason. The danger is when our preferences hinder our function as the local church, when our preferences hinder our position as a follower of Jesus, as someone who's expected to be a part of this communal living. Our position as Christians is being a part of the body of Christ. The body by nature has many parts. Listen, just a, a, a note here. Be careful about your individualism. And I mean by that, be careful of becoming an isolationist. Be careful of becoming a hermit in that sense, which a lot of people are prone to. It's easy. Families are hermits. <laughs> and maybe they say, well, we have, our, we have our own little community here. And you know that's not right. You know you're not the local church. There's a difference. It's bad to be alone in certain cases but it's also bad not to be able to be alone with jesus some people no knock to evan because he likes being very social this is not at him at all some people's spiritual life is waning because they thrive so much on community they thrive so much on social interaction that they don't know how to be alone with jesus they don't know how to pursue Jesus on this individual, one-to-one, life-on-life with Jesus and ourselves. They don't know what to do that's foreign to them. And so they lean so much on the group, on the gathering. And I want to be careful how I say that because the gathering's there, the community's there, and that's a part of it. But be careful not, be careful that you're, 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 you're not, be, 
be sure, I should say that, we be sure that you're able to be alone and be alone with Jesus, but not to the degree that you don't need anything else, that you don't want anything else. And I don't mean you need something more than Jesus, but clearly, clearly there's a command to be a part of community. And the final, the final thing, and then I'll make closing comments, is this, be careful of mutuality. And this is approaching your idea of a gathering, your idea of community, insofar as it is mutually beneficial for you. Some people are a part of a gathering or they connect and maybe they think they have community because there's a, mutual, there's a mutuality, a mutual benefit to having community with this group or this person. But what does it do to all those around that maybe you don't share that mutual benefit with? It will exclude others who are not mutually beneficial to you, and that breaks the paradigm of community. It will fail over time as we lose attractiveness and the mutuality and the mutually beneficial foundation to our community. You are designed for community, so to deny that is destructive for you and potentially destructive or damaging, I should say, for the church to which you belong, to which you've covenanted together with. If God has placed you here, he has intentions for your gifting to edify his church. And here's my closing comments, and this is more for further discussion when you have your missional communities this week. First thing is this, community is not built. I'm sorry, community is not found, it's built. It's a work in progress. You will get out of it what you put into it. You know, uh, not to... Not to single out our, our friends visiting today, but yes, to single out our friends visiting today, they're looking for uh, a place to worship. They've been looking. Uh, they're going to be married soon. And I think uh, no matter where the Lord has you, an exhortation for the two of you would be that don't expect to go into a place and immediately you found community because community is built. It's interpersonal relationship. It's discovery. It's, it's growth. It's intentionality. It's a mental connection. It's a physical, spiritual connection. It's, it's all of these things. Uh, that, that we take. It's just like, you know, our relationship to anybody, our relationship to our wives. You know, uh, in some cases, you marry somebody right out of the gate, depending on what culture you're in. But even in those places, you, you don't know each other like you're going to know each other. Relationships take work. If your relationship in the church body are superficial at best, then you don't have community. Community is built on giving and receiving. God's design is that each would bring their gifts, wisdom, knowledge, experience, and love to the table for the edification of the saints. Community requires less of your physical presence and more of the presence of your mind and heart. Understand this, because this is highly applicable for when community is disrupted. And I've said this to you before over the last several months. Your responsibility and obligation to community is not, is not simply sitting in that chair. There is a mental and spiritual demand. There is an emotional demand on you to function properly in community, which means to be invested into the lives of those that are around you. So if you're out pandemic has you out, your responsibility is what? It's that you should be checking on people. You should be praying for people. You should still have community because we have way too many technological excuses right now that will keep us 
from ever saying we had no way to stay communal. There are only a thousand ways to stay up with people, to keep up with people. That's a part of being in a community. That's what that is. That's why Austin and I say this every week. Look around you, see who's not here, reach out to them. That's communal living. We're not ostracizing people. We want them to know that they are loved. We want them to know that they are missed. We want to keep to see how they're doing. Some of them may be gone because they're worried of a virus. Some of them may be gone because they're struggling spiritually. These are things you don't know unless you're investing, investigating, unless you're checking out, unless you're checking in on. Because when you find out those things, then you can properly one another. You can bear with one another's burdens or bear one another's burdens. You can admonish, you can exhort, you can encourage. And finally this, community is a gift. Christian community is a gathering of the saints who are different in many ways, but unified and have commonality in the one thing that matters, and that's the gospel. It is a gift of God that we get together, that we get to share life together. It's a gift of God that outside of the two hours that we're here totaled on a Sunday, that we can, that we can go and that we can pick up phones, that we can meet to play Frisbee golf or whatever we do, and we can continue to commune with one another. That we can text, that we can do all this and check in with one another. That God has given us to one another for the edification of the church, but for His glory. This is a gift, and I hope that you see it that way. Because until you see it as a true gift, you won't really appreciate what it is. So I think it's good that we would pray that way, that we would see the gift and the blessing that we have in one another. Whether we're 50 strong or 500 strong, we see that this truly is a gift. And let me just say this. We are in a uniquely special position in that we're not a church of 500. Community looks a bit different there. It becomes much more complex. I'm thankful to God that we have just enough people that we can really, truly know one another. We have all the makings of what could be a truly vibrant, healthy body of Christ. But it will be what you make of it. It will be what you put into it. And it will be something wonderfully great if we take all that Christ has given us individually and collectively and we invest it into one another. And that's the way that we pray and the way that we think of the trajectory of Haven Ridge. So let's pray together and we will be dismissed. Father, I pray that you would cause the reality of community, fellowship, koinonia, this true, deep, gospel-unifying togetherness that we have, that that would land so strongly on our hearts and that we would see it as a privilege that we would count it as a joy, as a true gift, a gift that we want to enjoy, that we want to share, that we want to experience over and over and over again. Lord, I pray that we would dare, that we would dare to trust you at your word. And that's for me included when it comes to all the one anothering that takes place throughout the epistles, throughout the scripture. Lord, we would dare to be so blatantly obedient to your word when it comes to our interpersonal relationships with one another that we might dare to sit back and watch what you do. I know a lot of these things are not easy. In our minds, we think it will disrupt community if certain things take place, especially if it's admonishment or exhortation. But Lord, what mom or dad who says they deeply love their children go through life without admonishment, discipline, or exhortation?
And those are the difficult things. God, make us mindful of things that are easy, just loving, just encouraging. Recognizing someone else's gifts and maybe asking them to help. Maybe pointing out the fact that this person is gifted in this way and I'm not. And I need your expertise. I need your gifting here. And it's going to make this whole community, this community of the local church that is Haven Ridge, this this local expression of the global body, Lord, that it would change things for us. It would make us all the better as representations of what we should be as the bride of Christ. I thank you for the time today to work through some of these things. I thank you for what's on the horizon for us, Lord, looking at a, uh, talking about marriage, its origins, and all the things that are woven into that. I thank you for opportunities that you're giving us. I thank you for people that are interested, people that have hearts and desires to want to know these things. I pray that we would all be good stewards of your word, of our time, of the gifts and abilities that you've given us, and that we might be intentional with those things. In Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed.